So we continue in our worship by putting ourselves under the authority of God's word read out loud. And we read from the the section of scripture you'll have in the handout, which is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask We receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. For that uh, the fourth century church father Jerome had said that the apostle John, our author uh, this morning, his key message in his life and ministry was to love one another. And when he could no longer preach anymore, couldn't physically stand and didn't have the lungs anymore to do that, he would be brought into the church in Ephesus by others and he would have just enough energy to give that same encouragement week after week, little children love one another. And so we come this morning at around about the midpoint of his letter to maybe his key message, love one another. And so we're going to see there the call to love in verses 11 to 15, the heart of generosity in verses 16 to 18, and then the Christian's confidence in those remaining verses. Firstly, there, there's a call to love. Look at verse 11 there with me. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. There's something that we should do, that is to love one another, isn't there? And there's something that we should not do. We shouldn't be like Cain. We know that this is a message that John has given them many times. He's given it several times, even in this letter, isn't he? He said in chapter 2, verse 7, this is no new commandment I'm giving you. This is an old commandment. It's the word that you've heard. The gospel message that he's brought to them many times and previously in this letter is what he's bringing them back to. And back there, the gospel message in particular, the thing he wanted to pick up was that the hope of salvation from God's judgment, from sin, comes in Jesus. 
It's chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. The message that he's given them many times and previously in this letter says that the way to live righteously is to abide in Jesus. And we abide in Jesus by sticking to the gospel, the message that he's brought. This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The gospel calls us to love as we have been loved by Jesus. So that we could say that belief in the gospel is evidenced by love for other Christians. That we should love one another. But there's something to not be like, isn't there? Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It's a story as old as time, isn't it? A brother turning on a brother. Jealousy, envy, Betrayal, attack, murder. Story as old as time. Story seen a million times around us. Perhaps one of the most obvious examples in recent memory is the Miliband brothers. Uh, Two political brothers in the Labour Party, Ed and David. David was the foreign secretary at the time. Ed was some other secretary, I can't remember turning on each other for the leadership of the party. And the papers picked up time and time again that this was the modern day Cain and Abel, the story from the Bible. So much so that David Cameron, when asked by Ed Miliband later on if he'd sack his foreign secretary, responded, there's only one person around here I can remember knifing a foreign secretary, and I think I'm looking at him. It's a story that goes way back to Genesis 4, to Abel and Cain. Abel offering a good offering, Cain offering a bad offering. Cain kills Abel rather than correcting his error. And what is the contrast? Look at the contrast that John makes here. He says that Cain's deeds were evil. He didn't just get it wrong. There was something evil about what Cain did. It's important that you see that. And there was something righteous about what Abel did. It wasn't just that he was lucky. And what is it talking about? It's not yet talking about the murder. You can't really do anything righteous in being murdered. It's a neutral act, isn't it? It's something being performed to you anyway. It's talking about the offering. That Cain did something evil. Abel did something righteous. Why? What made it either righteous or evil? Well, Cain remembered, uh, sorry, Abel remembered, when I come before God, something has to die for my sin, for me to stand before him. And so he brings an animal that he slaughters. How does he know that? Well, Genesis 3, verse 21, at the end uh, of Adam and Eve's fall as they're being exiled, we hear that God makes for them garments of skins, that is, some animals die in order to clothe them. 
They had become aware of their nakedness and their vulnerability and were ashamed. God, before he sends them out of his sight, clothes them, and in order to do so, an animal dies. Now, how do we know that Cain should have known that? Well, Genesis 4 verse 7 tells us, If you do well, will you not be accepted? As Adam and Eve and Cain's sin and shame will be covered by the death of an animal, so too Christ's death covers your sin and your shame. And John has told us this already. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the propitiation for our sins. Cain's murder of Abel began and came from a lack of faith and then a wrong approach to God. Evidence then in hate towards his brother. And there are false teachers here who we've said John is writing against who treat their brothers and sisters in this way because they do not understand what Jesus has done for them. And this is something he will continue to tease out. But it's noticeable that sin's introduction comes in Genesis chapter 3, is followed the very next chapter with a murder between brothers. It shows the extent, the growth of sin as a problem amongst humankind. See, Now we come into conflict with the world's message on sin because the world will address the results of sin without naming it. And what they'll seek to do so often is depersonalize it. It's all about a system. It's not about me. It's all about personal responsibility. It's all about the things that have happened to me and around me, the circumstances you don't know about. And it always seeks to redirect it. It's all horizontal. What I mean by that is it's all about what people do to other people. But that always comes out of the vertical in life. That is what we do and how we see God. We've been reminded here in John's letter, Jesus came without sin to remove sin, to save from sin. And apart from him, there's no hope. Politics, revolutions, rules, therapy, social media, virtue signaling are all powerless against sin. They will never change it. But Jesus will and has and does. There's something we should do, something we should not do. We should love, we should not be like Cain. In verse 13, we see here an opposition you should expect And this thinks about the Christian in the world. Look at verse 13 there with me. Do not be surprised, brothers, or brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. The world hates you because only the gospel can truly restrain human envy and solidly maintain love. We've been called previously in chapter 2 not to love the world and not to love the things of the world. And that's much, much easier when you realize that the world hates God and hates you. It is not seeking your best. There is an opposition you should expect. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. 
But then there is a love that is to be expected. And this thinks about the Christian in the church. Look at verse 14 there. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, abi- whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Loving your Christian brothers and sisters is a benchmark of you having passed from an old way of life to a new one. And to not love is to choose to live in a destructive pattern of life, both for yourself and for other people. And this again comes in contrast to the message of the world because the message of the world is that the most life-giving thing you can possibly do is to self-love. You can even buy it on t-shirts and jumpers in Primark. It says the most life-giving thing to do is to self-love rather than loving others. But the message here is the most life-giving thing you can possibly do is to love others. Look at that verse 15 there. Hate produces murder, doesn't it? And here, hate is almost seen as equal to murder. And that's a very challenging thought, isn't it? Because I would hope that we would all this morning be saying, well, I've I've not murdered anybody, uh, at least not yet. Good. But I suspect that we may very well have hated numerous people in various moments. And so that becomes much more challenging, doesn't it? It's this very same teaching as Jesus, though, isn't it, on the Sermon on the Mount? But what connects verse 12 with this? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Well, these false teachers, these secessionists, these ones who have left the church behind, too good for the church, too perfect, need the fellowship of brothers and sisters, they are the world here. In John's mind, the world who hates you now includes these former brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who have turned on the family. And there is here a call instead to love. But secondly, we get an insight here to the heart of generosity. And one of the things that John does is to define love, because that's a problem for us. The world agrees that love is good. We all should love. But it disagrees on defining love. In fact, frequently, the best description that it attempts to give is, well, love is love, which is no definition. And it doesn't believe. Nobody truly believes love is love. Nobody believes that love where it's not consensual is love. Nobody believes love where it's abusive and coercive is love. Nobody believes that love, romantically speaking, between an adult and a child is love. Or at least I hope they don't. No, it doesn't hold up at all, does it? But that's the world's definition so often, isn't it? And the problem becomes that love needs defining. And here... John does this for us. The fourth highest grossing movie of all time is still Titanic, which really is a love story, not a historical biopic. Um, Sorry for the spoilers if you've sort of not seen it, but but there you go, this is going to give you the plot in roughly 30 seconds. Uh, Rose, Kate Winslet, is from a wealthy family, but a wealthy family who are on the brink of financial ruin and disgrace. 
And she is engaged to Cal, who is a successful businessman, but she doesn't love him, and frankly, he's not very nice. But the marriage will potentially save her family from financial ruin and from social disgrace. However, she meets Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, a poor artist, and of course, she falls in love with him. Now, here's the point of this. In the West, we watch that movie, and we think, well, Rose should pursue the individual fulfillment in the man that she loves, not do what her family wants. For goodness sake, don't be held back by your family. Go and find love for yourself. Do what's right for you. And we think, what an amazing story this is, because she does that. However, if you live, roughly speaking, somewhere in the global east, you might watch that film and think entirely differently. Because your perspective might be, well, actually, Rose should forsake her individual fulfillment and marry the man that she doesn't truly love who will save her family. Because you know what? Her family is more important than him or her. She should have done what was right for them and made a sacrifice. See, love needs defining, doesn't it? And so love is defined supremely here from the Apostle John, not in a cultural way, but supremely through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We had that negative encouragement in verses 11 and 12, don't be like Cain, but in 16 here we have a positive, be like Christ. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We've said that John's letter is regularly Uh, He's using shorthand that goes back to major ideas from his gospel. And last chapter, one of them was that idea of abiding in Jesus. And that came from John chapter 15. And that is also the source of John's thought here, I think. This is from verse 12 to 14 of, of John chapter 15. Love one another as I have loved you. This is Jesus speaking. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And this is the idea that John has here, that as you have been, are, and will be loved in Jesus Christ, so love others. You won't always hit that, and you certainly cannot be anyone's saviour, but make love your aim. And he has a practical idea of how that might work out. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You might notice that John is back to speaking about what he was speaking about in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the goods of the world. If anyone has these and refuses to give them, Christ's love is not in him. In chapter 2, 15 to 17, sin was pictured as being ruled by passions for the things of the world. John did that in three ways. He spoke of desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life, or pride in possessions. Desires of the flesh, that is, passions. The temptation to feel good. And things come along that promise to make you feel good. Whether that's comfort 
or sex, or drugs, or food, or approval, or gossip, or television, or whatever particular thing it is for you, desires of the flesh, things that promise to make you feel good, desires of the eyes, about possession, the temptation to have, things that tell you you need to have them, a certain salary level, a certain standard of living, houses, cars, clothes, relationships, holidays, whatever else, desires of the eyes. And pride of life, pride in possessions, position, the temptation to be, things that promise to make you feel good about yourself, the desire to be loved, to be known, to be famous, to be significant, to be worshipped, lived out in a perfect marriage, fulfilling job, successful children. And there, John's idea was not to be controlled by the desire to get hold of them. Here, it's about being controlled by the desire to not let go of them. He who has the goods of the world, but closes his heart against his brother and refuses to share. Neither time is John saying it's a sin to have those things. The sin is giving control over to them, isn't it? It's no sin to have. The sin is to be controlled by them. Sin is to refuse to let go of them when asked reasonably. And this comes in stark contrast to the early church. The early church faced extreme persecution, but it was marked by radical generosity. Just one excerpt from Acts chapter 4 here. No one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. But there are some here who have the world's goods, see their brothers in need, yet close their hearts against him. And notice that language. It's about the heart, isn't it? And that's the reason it's a benchmark of saving faith that we do love. Our ability to love others reveals our heart. It reveals whether we really know God's love, doesn't it? How can God's love abide in him? The God who saves us out of our own self-inflicted stubborn ruin. And here's the challenge. I'm not sure anyone ever says you shouldn't love others. I'm not sure that anyone ever really says they don't love others. But verse 18 tells us that there are some who are not. Little children, let us love in word or talk, uh, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's the problem. There is a gap between belief and behavior, what they say and reality. Don't love in word or in theory or in belief. Don't just say you sort of believe in it or just speak it and talk. But do it indeed in actual action and in truth, in reality. We find that love is a costly thing, don't we? Look at verse 16 there again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The implication here is that how that is practically done for this group of people is, well, Start off with the world's goods and build up from there. But love costs, doesn't it? It costs Jesus his life. And true love amongst us will cost 
And so the question is, are we willing to pay that cost? But true generosity naturally comes from sticking to the gospel message and the model of the cross of Christ. There's a heart of generosity there. And then thirdly, we see the Christian's confidence. There's a great interaction between Luke Skywalker and his father in one of the Star Wars movies. He's desperately trying to persuade his father back to the good side. Luke says, search your feelings, father. You can't do this. I feel the conflict within you. Let go of your hate. To which Darth Vader responds, it's too late for me, son. The emperor will show you the true nature of the force. He is your master now. Then my father is truly dead. You see, John's idea here is that being led by your feelings leads to death. Your feelings need led by the gospel of Jesus. And so the Christian ought to have a confidence One of the reasons that John writes this little letter is to reassure those who do believe in Jesus to keep believing in him. Look at verse 19 here. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. We'll skip the next sort of couple, two and a half verses or so and come down to the second part of verse 22 because the best way to understand it is to go that way around and then come back he says because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him that completes the thought that he begins right at the beginning of verse 19 that by this because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him and John is making a reference here again to his gospel from chapter 8 verse 28 and 29 and the idea of doing what is pleasing to Jesus is found there as Jesus speaks Jesus says when you've lifted up the son of man then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me and he who sent me is with me he's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him As Jesus, in his first coming, did all that he did in order to please his father, that's what he says there, so our aim in life ought to be to please Jesus. And again, this comes into conflict with the world, doesn't it? Because the world, in general, sort of says something along the lines of, you know, yes, love other people, but also love yourself first. And, you know, do what pleases you. And, of course... If you have an ounce of sense, you'll realise those are totally incompatible ideas. They don't work at all, do they? They're fighting each other as you say them. Your life, primarily being about pleasing Jesus, not yourself, is the firm foundation for loving others. But it's really important that you know that when John says here, that little phrase there, keep his commandments... What he is not thinking and anticipating is observe all of the Old Testament law to earn God's favour. That's not what he's thinking. Look at verse 23 and 24 here, because now he explains what that commandment is. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. There's a command in verse 23. There's a statement in the first part of verse 24 and a reassurance in the second part. There's that command, verse 23. This is his commandment. One, believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. There's the commands. Believe and love. And then verse 24, it begins with something that's quite symmetrical. If you abide in him, you will keep his commands. And to keep his commands is to abide in him. How am I able sort of to do that? How do I know that I'm doing that? Well, the second part of verse 24 gives us the reassurance. By this we know that he abides in us. It's by the spirit whom he has given us. We can abide in him because he has come to abide in us through his spirit. And so the hope of growing and living out Christ's love in our life is the work of God in us that we trust in faith. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, God who works in you, it's God who is working, both to will, that is affecting your desires, your aims, your motivations, and to work, your ability to actually do it for his good pleasure. The gospel, the good news of Jesus working in you through the power of the Spirit is the power of God for salvation, that is for your rescue, but it is also the power for your sanctification. You're becoming like Jesus. So now, go back to the beginning of that little section. Verses 19 here. By this we should know that we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whoever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. If we believe in Christ and we love one another, then... Verse 19, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, and the word there is, be persuaded in our heart before him. We will know that we are of the truth and we'll be reassured, we'll be persuaded in our hearts before him. John is concerned to reassure these believers because, verse 20, our heart condemns us sometimes doesn't it and the word there is literally blames us and so there's a contrast between our heart being persuaded in the gospel and our heart by nature blaming us and then look at what John's solution to this is verse 20 God is greater than our heart and he knows everything our feelings are not as great as God our feelings must align with God's word and not God's word align with our feelings. That's the route to assurance. Verse 21, beloved, if a heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If we don't let our blaming heart be persuaded by the gospel, we will shrink back from God. The very thing that John has said earlier on in chapter 2. 
written that he wants them to have confidence and not shrink back from God at Jesus' return. But you will shrink back if you don't allow your blaming heart to be persuaded by the solid hope of the gospel. And so we can approach him confidently. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Verse 22. We can approach him with confidence, with the confidence of accepted, chosen children who are loved and welcomed by God. See, the gospel persuades us where our heart wants to blame us. We can approach God our Father with confidence. There's a call to love, that heart of generosity, and then we see the Christian's confidence. The world is clear, isn't it, that the world would be a better place if we could just love others better. But the world says that the route to loving others is by loving yourself. Meanwhile, the world has become more divided. People are more narcissistic and more at conflict than they maybe ever have been. And John's message to these believers is the one he always gave. Little children love one another. But John has a very different answer for how we might actually arrive at loving others. And let me give you three brief, simple encouragements as we close. Firstly, for John, love can be known. Love is truly seen in the saving life and death of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is to be understood by what Jesus has done and experienced in what he has done. In Jesus coming down to earth and dying for our sin to save us, he has defined what love is. Love is not a nebulous, undefined thing. It's not seen in the world, though, is it? It's not whatever you want it to be. It's defined. Love is seen in the perfect life and yet willing death of Jesus in the place of sinful human beings. For John, love can be known, and love is truly seen in the saving life and death of Jesus. Secondly, for John, love can be found. True love is given by Jesus Christ. Verse 19 and 20, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Whether we feel worthy or deserving, or not really, is not relevant. God has loved us, and he knows everything. He knows the flaws that you are not aware of. You're simply not even cognizant enough to realize you have. That fact is unchanging and is displayed in Jesus' finished work for us. The good news of the gospel is there to persuade our hearts when they are not sure or when they blame us. But for John, love can be found and true love is given by Jesus. And then thirdly, for John, love should be shared. We should love others because Jesus loves us. Verse 16 finishes, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Because Jesus has loved us and our Christian siblings in this way, then we should love others too. But also, 
Because Jesus has loved us this way, we can love others like this. It is hard, if not impossible, to do what you've never seen or experienced in life. But through Jesus, we have experienced true love. And so we can begin to express that to others. And we must. In fact, and here really is John's point, we will naturally love others the more we reflect on the love God has shown us in Christ. Little children, love one another 